Welcome to today's podcast. This interview is part of the Youth Fusion Program, which is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction, and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development, and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear to inform, educate, connect, and engage our fellow students, activists, and enthusiasts through these activities. And as part of Abolition 2000 Network, we're contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. My name is Akada Hu. I'm a research assistant at PND and program assistant with Youth Fusion. Let me introduce to you today's guest, Dr. Zhao Tong. Dr. Zhao is a senior fellow in the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, based in Beijing at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. His research focuses on strategic security issues such as nuclear weapons policy, deterrence, arms control, non-proliferation, etc. He holds a PhD in science, technology, and international affairs from Georgia Institute of Technology as well as an MA in International Relations and a BS in Physics from Tsinghua University. He's the author of Tides of Change, China's Nuclear Ballistic Missile Submarines and Strategic Stability, and Narrowing the US-China Gap on Missile Defense, How to Help Forestall a Nuclear Arms Race. Our conversation touches on China's no-first use and nuclear disarmament policy, engagement of the younger generation, and intergenerational dialogue, so without further ado, let's begin this discussion. So, Dr. Zhao, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, first part of the question is very relevant to your personal experiences, and I'm very curious about your personal experiences as well as your uh, professional experiences. And you hold a BS in physics, but then your research tend to international affairs as well as international relations. So uh, I'm wondering what motivates you to change the focus of research? Uh, would that be interest or awareness of uh, relevant issues? And how did your involvement in nuclear arms control and disarmament begin? Well, I, I was a physics uh, student. I was studying physics uh, when I was an undergrad. I was fortunate to uh, get enrolled in a class taught by Professor Li Bin at Tsinghua. Um, he uh, is uh, you know, one of the top Chinese experts on nuclear policy issues, arms control. And he had this class on science, technology, and international security. And I was fortunate to register for this class and uh, through uh, this class became really interested in uh, international security issues and in particular arms control and nuclear policy issues. To me, a student of physics, uh, it opened a new door for me, right? Uh, nuclear weapons, it, uh, you know, they affect uh, the well-beings of humanity more than anything else. So of course the topic is very interesting to me. Um, 
Um, so uh, I realized uh, that I could make use of my uh, scientific and technical background and study uh, international uh, security issues and especially arms control issues. Uh, so that's how I, I was introduced in this field and has been conducting research together with Professor Li Bin for many years afterwards. Um, so I, I, I feel really uh, lucky. Uh, for the opportunity to study in this uh, area. Yeah, so you, uh, it's the like passion and your interest, your awareness of the some uh, very detrimental impacts of nuclear weapons that drives you to further study uh, this kind of policies or uh, stops. And I was wondering that what kind of unique perspective does the educational background of physics and international relations provide you with in the analysis of nuclear policies, for example, deterrence and non-proliferation? Well, I, I think the uh, my education in physics provided me with the capacity to conduct uh, research through scientific methodology, uh, through scientific methods. Um, and uh, I was, uh, I think, uh, lucky to be equipped with uh, some knowledge in, in physics. Uh, so I was able to conduct uh, some technical analysis uh, about, you know, uh, about foreign, about security policy issues. Right. Uh, you know, I in my research, I deal with nuclear weapons, missiles, missile defense, space based technologies, hypersonic weapons. So if, if one has some technical capacity to understand all the technologies behind the policy issues and uh, even better, if one can conduct some independent techn uh, technical analysis about uh, the underlying technical issues that will, I think, really help policy researchers to develop a more comprehensive uh, understanding of the issue at hand, right? One example I, I would give you is um, uh, about the dispute among US, China, and South Korea around 2016 over the deployment of a stat missile defense battery in South Korea. There was a lot of public debate about how this radar, the ANTPI-2 radar of this stat battery could uh, seriously undermine Chinese nuclear deterrent, right? But it was a hypothesis. It was uh, thrown out there in the public by someone, but no one really uh, deeply analyzes uh, how, uh, how accurate uh, the, uh, the uh, accusation really is. Um, so I think if one has some technical background, background uh, then uh, he or she can conduct independent technical analysis and really understand how much impact that particular weapon system could have on Chinese nuclear deterrent. And, and therefore, he or she wouldn't be uh, misled by all the wild accusations you heard uh, in the media. Uh, and spread by uh, non-experts. Uh, uh, non um, so I think that's particularly useful. And if you look at the arms control experts in the US and many other Western countries, many of them have developed 
a very deep understanding about technical issues throughout their career of conducting foreign policy research or security policy research. Uh, so I think it's very useful for people, uh, you know, whether your background is, is um, political science or if you come from an engineering or technical background, ultimately you need to develop a more comprehensive uh, set of knowledge. And, and that's very important for people who work on uh, real world uh, security policy issues. Yeah, sure. I think so. I think that uh, scientific approaches in the analysis of uh, international relations are quite important since to some extent, I think that these things in international relations when we analyze some political agenda or political goals, something uh, is really theoretical and we do need some uh, scientific approaches and make things more operationalized. So uh, let's move on to our second uh, topic of questions about China's no first use and the nuclear disarmament policy. Uh, China's 1964 statement on its nuclear tests said that China is developing uh, nu nuclear weapons not because it believes in their omnipotence, not because it plans to use them. And China will never at any time or under any circ circumstances be the first to use nuclear weapons. And India also has uh, no first use policy. And why do you think China and India have adopted no first use policies? And do you think it's possible for other nuclear armed states, uh, especially France, Russia, UK and USA to adopt, uh, also adopt such policies? Well, um, China and India, they adopted uh, no first use. Um, I think one important reason is uh, they, uh, they wanted to reduce uh, international opposition against their nuclear programs. Um, and uh, to say explicitly that uh, my nuclear weapons is only uh, to respond to a nuclear attack that would uh, uh, send a message that my nuclear weapons are purely for self-defensive purposes. Um, so in an international environment where um, uh, countries who openly pursued nuclear weapons were viewed uh, with suspicion uh, and uh, uh, and, and met, uh, met, were met with questions, I think such a policy would help bolster those countries' image as a responsible uh, nuclear power. It would reduce international concern about these countries using nuclear weapons for coercive purposes. Um, so that's, um, I think, one important motivation. And of course, um, I think um, these countries, to some extent, also believed at that time that um, it would be unrealistic for them to use nuclear weapons in a conventional conflict anyway. Uh, the international opposition against nuclear weapons was very strong, uh, so it wouldn't make uh, much uh, sense for them to um, um, uh, want their nuclear weapons to play a role in a conventional conflict. So because of that, uh, why don't we just uh, renounce 
the use of nuclear weapons in conventional conflict at the very beginning. Right? Um, so uh, it's also related to how decision makers perceived uh, the limitations of nuclear weapons at that time. Um, so I think that's that's you know, maybe those are part of parts of the reasons uh, China and India developed no first use policy early on in their nuclear program. Whether other countries can emulate uh, Chinese and Indian policy and also adopt no first use, um, I think the question is more complex than it seems. Uh, there are, you know, U.S., Russia. Um, Britain, France, they all have different reasons why they are resisting adopting no-first-use policy. Uh, and we have to look deeply into their respective concerns, uh, why they have reservations, what do they worry about. Um, it's not like uh, you know people can just change their mind overnight and start to um, uh, you know, shaped towards you no know, first use. It's, it's uh, much more complex than that. So we have to gradually uh, discuss about their concerns and try to address their concerns before we can uh, have a, a greater chance of uh, encouraging these countries towards moving towards you no know, first use policies. Yeah, sure. And for the perspective of China, um there is certain impacts on the countries itself and how does china's no first use uh, policy may affect uh, national security interests of china and global globally the international nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament well, china's no first use was uh, established by china's uh, first generation of paramount leaders Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, uh, etc. Um, because they uh, supported no first use, um, the policy became a central element of China's uh, traditional nuclear policy. Um, so the authority of China's first generation of political leaders uh, really helped uh, uh, ensure that uh, China uh, would stick to no first use policy for a long time, despite the change of uh, leadership uh, in following decades. Um, and because of China's traditional uh, support of no first use, uh, it really affected how Chinese uh, nuclear and military strategists uh, make uh, development and deployment plans for China's uh, nuclear weapons. They, uh, they don't explicit plan for a preemptive use of nuclear weapons. Uh, they mostly practice uh, using nuclear weapons after being struck by an enemy nuclear attack. Therefore, they heavily emphasized uh, the importance of conducting nuclear attacks under a heavily contaminated uh, battlefield environment um, and uh, they don't emphasize the need for China to uh, build a large nuclear arsenal 
because no first use basically means that China only needs to maintain a credible and a survivable second strike capability after absorbing a nuclear for, uh, nuclear attack first. So that also helped China maintain a relatively small and a modest uh, nuclear arsenal. Um, and no first use also means China's nuclear uh, employment policy is uh, more uh, more it's more modest. Right? It's it's more it's more self-restraint uh, compared with uh, some other nuclear weapon states. So all this together, I think, contributed to an image of China being a responsible nuclear power, um, uh, and that helped China's own uh, national security by not wasting too much money and resources. Uh, in building a massive nuclear arsenal, and it also helped international security, including arms control and non-proliferation efforts, by uh, setting up this very positive example of a country that does not depend too heavily on nuclear weapons for its national security. Uh, so I think those are very important uh, positive uh, consequences of China's no first use. Okay, sure. Uh, but although China has a very consistent nuclear uh, policy, for example, no first use policy, but there appears to be a lack of confidence from other countries, for example, USA and Japan, in the credibility of China's uh, no first use policy. And do you think this uh, concern is justified? And are there operational measures that China could take that would help build confidence in the no first use policy? I'm not in a position to um, evaluate the credibility of China's no first use. I would uh, simply uh, explain why there are uh, concerns uh, in other countries about the credibility of Chinese no, Chinese no first use policy. According to Western scholars who got access to some um, Chinese military textbooks, um, including, uh, for example, the, the Science of Second Artillery Campaign that was published in the uh, mid-2000s. And also uh, a former uh, deputy commander of China's Second Artillery uh, also published a book about uh, missile deterrent uh, operations uh, around uh, the same uh, period of time. And by the way, the Second Artillery uh, are the former name of Chinese uh, the, of the PLA rocket force, which operates uh, China's land-based missile uh, forces, including nuclear and conventional forces. So, according to the Western scholars, they found in these uh, uh, Chinese military textbooks and also other uh, seemingly authoritarian publications that uh, the term. Uh, to lower the threshold of nuclear use and to readjust nuclear policy. Both terms were, were used in these uh, rather authoritarian uh, 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 documents. And uh, the documents also described a number of scenarios in which China would threaten the use of nuclear weapons in a conventional military conflict. Um, so if uh, the research by the Western scholars uh, is accurate, then it appears that at least at the military level, China is 
prepared to have nuclear weapons play a role, not only in a nuclear conflict, but also in a conventional conflict. Of course, people may argue, and indeed, some Western scholars have argued that, well, even if China threatens to use nuclear weapons in a conventional conflict, China may simply want, China may be simply, uh, simply bluffing. It doesn't really intend to follow through the threat and actually launch a nuclear attack. So China only intends to threaten the use of nuclear weapons in order to achieve its foreign policy goals. It would not actually implement the threat. But other people would also argue, okay, but in a conflict, how can other countries really tell whether China is bluffing or sincerely threatening the use of nuclear weapons? Any reasonable and sensible decision makers would have to treat China's threat of nuclear use as a serious threat, right? And, and these people may also argue that by threatening uh, use of nuclear weapons in a conventional con conflict would already violate at least the spirit of no first use. It doesn't matter whether China later on actually carries carries out the threat. If you threaten the use, then you basically have al already violated uh, the no first use promise. So I think that's one important reason people have questions. And also, um, you know, China's system, political government system is different from foreign countries, many, many foreign countries. Um, and uh, in a very centralized decision-making system, everything is decided by one paramount leader. There is no institutional uh, constraints or regulations that would make sure that this one individual uh, wouldn't uh, will do you know will always make decisions that is consistent with China's declaratory policy. So many people worry that you know the no first use is just a declaratory policy. Chinese leaders can you know withdraw this policy, they can change this policy at any time. And I think because people don't have confidence in in a very centralized political system uh, where there is no institutional constraints. Um, and limit limits on the one person's uh, 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 authority. Uh, I think that also undermines uh, some countries' confidence in the credibility or sustainability of China's no first use. Um, so I think you know China and all other countries would all benefit uh, to have a candid discussion on these issues. Uh, if China is really serious about no first use, it should have no concern about having an open and candid discussion and try to clarify its policies, including the policies written in its military uh, documents, um, and also to explain how uh, no first use can be guaranteed uh, in a highly centralized decision-making system. Um, so I think there are ways that people can work uh, to uh, gradually uh, resolve or at least mitigate uh, these uh, questions or suspicions they have. So uh, also some conventions regarding the nuclear weapons can help people step back and uh, think uh, in calm or rationally. So and China and India have also proposed a nuclear weapons convention 
which is a treaty including the nuclear armed and other countries to prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons under uh, international control. And do you think there are ways in which China, possibly in cooperation with India, could advance this proposal or and is it a coincidence that the two nuclear armed countries with new no first use policies are also the two most supportive of, of a nuclear weapons convention? Or is there a connection between this? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, people have argued that sometimes uh, rhetorical support is just rhetorical support. Right? Um, I, I don't recall China or India um, publicly supported a nuclear weapons convention that would prohibit the development, the manufacturing, the stockpiling, the deployment, and the use of nuclear weapons uh, categorically. Uh, many decades ago, uh, a long time ago, maybe China and uh, India uh, have had uh, publicly supported uh, such a convention, but I don't think that's uh, uh, no. I don't think that's uh, still Chinese official policy. Uh, I think there is there might have been a change of policy throughout the decades. At the very beginning, it's it's true that uh, according to Chinese government public statement, according to Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai. Uh, at, you know, after China detonated its first nuclear weapon, China openly declared the role of Chinese development, the, the role of Chinese nuclear weapons is to uh, accelerate, is to promote international nuclear disarmament. Because before China acquired nuclear weapons, you know, all the, all the nuclear weapons or most of the nuclear weapons were possessed by the uh, imperialist countries, you know, they had no intention to uh, conduct nuclear disarmament. But after China acquired nuclear weapons, uh, China would put, put pressure on those imperialist countries. So they would have to uh, disarm altogether. So Chinese nuclear weapons served the goal to promote international disarmament, to uh, achieve global disarmament as quickly as possible. That was the original uh, government declared purpose of Chinese nuclear program. But after decades of uh, nuclear investment and modernization, I don't think any Chinese uh, foreign policy or security policy strategist still believe that you know, the role of Chinese nuclear weapons is to promote international disarmament. Uh, to the contrary, uh, I think people today openly argued that China should uh, continue modernizing, China should develop more types of nuclear weapons, better quality. And some people even argue that China should have a much larger number of nuclear weapons. The, the, uh, clearly, the emphasis is how to better enhance Chinese nuclear capability. I don't think there is any serious discussion about China giving up nuclear weapons or to use these nuclear weapons to put pressure on US and Russia to altogether conduct nuclear disarmament. China rejected publicly and repeatedly uh, trilateral arms control uh, negotiations among US, Russia, and uh, China. And as you said, uh, there is already uh, an international nuclear weapons convention 
the TPNW, the Treaty to Prohibit uh, Nuclear Weapons that was negotiated uh, in, at, at the United Nations in 2017. And there, was not, there is now a treaty that pr prohibits everything, the development, the stockpiling, the deployment, the use of nuclear weapons, and China and India are both uh, strongly opposed to this treaty. Um, so I, I think we have to understand there is, you know, the history of it, which means there is a significant change of policy. Uh, I don't think it's uh, realistic uh, anymore today uh, to talk about China um, promoting such a convention because clearly China doesn't support uh, this treaty or any convention that is related or similar to it. Okay, so maybe we should move to the third part of our question. And I think uh, many people, many young people, especially uh, in today, today, they don't care much about our nuclear weapons issues. They lack kind of interest in this issue, although uh, nuclear weapon may have a very detrimental impact in our security uh, process. So I think the engagement of the younger generation, their realization, their participation in these issues are quite important. So as a scholar based in university, uh, do you keep in close contact with Chinese university students or interns? I very much agree with you that um, uh, to uh, cultivate the next generation uh, to engage with uh, young people um, uh, on the issue of nuclear weapons policy, arms, arms control disarmament is very important. Um, and uh, especially in China, nuclear security is viewed as a sensitive uh, area uh, for research. So many uh, students uh, avoided um, conducting research in, in this area. And therefore, the number of uh, young scholars, uh, analysts, researchers, who uh, are specialized in this field uh, is uh, relatively small. Um, and that's not in Chinese interests and, and, and also not in the interest of uh, uh, international uh, efforts to promote arms control and disarmament, uh, et cetera. Um, yes, sometimes I was invited to uh, give lectures uh, and meet with students uh, they have uh, research projects on nuclear topics. Um, I try to do my best to make myself available. Uh, and I, you know, oftentimes really enjoyed uh, sharing my personal uh, academic and, and, and uh, uh, analytical uh, perspective. Um, I think uh, young people are, you know, very, well, for me, this process of engaging with young people is very, uh, uh, inspir inspirational as well. I, I always feel uh, encouraged by their by their curiosity, by their uh, uh, dedication to a better world, uh, by their uh, genuine efforts to make a positive contribution to peace and stability. Um, so yes, I, I agree about the importance of this effort, and uh, hopefully, um, uh, Chinese young uh, uh, experts. Uh, and also foreign young experts uh, could uh, become, uh, you know, there will be more young people uh, become uh, interested in this field. Uh, I think that's really important uh, to uh, Chinese own security and also for uh, 
for the you know for this field for non-preparation for arms control we need young blood we need uh, more talent uh, to join us uh, in this effort so sure their engagement is quite uh, important we need more young students engaging in public affairs uh, through many ways uh, but uh, I'm wondering are there any constraints on freedom of dialogue by students on this issue and if students publish research that critiques Chinese policy and practice, would that be detrimental to their careers? As you've just said, uh, the nuclear policy issue uh, seems a, a bit of uh, sensitive uh, in the country. Um, I think that's just a rea reality people uh, have to deal with. Uh, it is uh, impossible uh, for anyone uh, to make critical comment about public uh, about government policy, I think that's well understood. Um, um, so of course that may affect um, some people's capacity to conduct research and to promote research. But again, you know, we we live in the real world. That's what we need to deal with. I think there are ways that people can still conduct balanced and informed research and to explain their research results in a balanced um, and uh, informed and intelligent manner. Uh, there are always obstacles, but uh, people can always um, come up with uh, efforts, uh, sometimes innovative efforts to overcome whatever obstacle, uh, because the stakes are simply too high uh, for people not to make an effort. Um, we live in an uh, era where there is a growing danger of nuclear arms race and even the use of nuclear weapons in a future military conflict. Uh, so we, we can't afford uh, uh, allowing nuclear weapons to be used again. Um, and for this purpose, I think uh, the society uh, will be benefited um, from a group of uh, specialists, policy specialists who have deep understanding about all the relevant aspects of nuclear policy, history, uh, technology, uh, domestic uh, policy thinking, international uh, foreign policy thinking. Um, so, um, so despite these obstacles, I hope that uh, more young people would uh, see why it is so important to still conduct research about these topics. Uh, and also, I think the academic exchange, the dialogues between uh, of people from different countries is quite important since they can exchange thoughts and their mentality uh, as well. And it's also affected by our outside environment, for example, political environment. And the political environment is becoming more and more complex today. And do you think the political tensions between uh, US and Chinese government and Japan, also the Japan and Chinese government, for example, have any impact on dialogue between academics and students from these countries? Well, very much so. Um, as as um, you uh, might be aware, uh, because of the uh, geopolitical tensions and hostilities, uh, international uh, academic exchanges are very much uh, affected. 
internationally, you know, uh, travels across borders become much more difficult. Of course, part of that is due to COVID-19, but part of that is also related to the geopolitical environment. Uh, scholars cannot travel as freely uh, as they could before. Sometimes they got uh, harassed by security personnel, uh, both domestically and, and in foreign countries. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, domestic uh, organizations, uh, universities, research institutes, they have all established tighter and more strict security rules and policies that uh, any scholar who wants to attend an international conference, they need to apply for official approval. They need to go through longer and more complex uh, procedures uh, to even be allowed to conduct international academic exchange. So all of these uh, are you know, uh, imposing a dear price on the experts' capacity uh, to uh, communicate and keep in touch where, with their colleagues uh, in foreign countries. Sometimes today, for scholars to uh, attend an online virtual meeting that might have a foreign audience, uh, would require very complex and uh, strict uh, approval procedure. So you can imagine how hard it has become for scholars to uh, to uh, conduct normal uh, academic uh, activity and uh, communication. So I, I argue, yes, uh, geopolitical uh, relations have a very serious and deep impact uh, on the cap capacity of uh, academics uh, to um, conduct research and uh, exchange. Uh, and I even argued in one of my written papers that uh, we are now witnessing a gradual decoupling of the expert communities uh, between China and uh, some, some you know, Western countries. The two expert communities, they no longer uh, talk with each other. Uh, they don't meet with each other uh, and, uh, you know, they meet with greater and greater uh, difficulty in, in simply exchanging ideas and, and comparing notes. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they access different information uh, all the time. So gradually their mindsets will drift apart. They will no longer understand each other. They have different understandings about basic facts. Uh, they will develop uh, deeper and deeper misunderstandings on specific policy issues, which accumulatively uh, will uh, uh, evolve into greater and greater uh, strategic distrust. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm very worried about this trend of academic decoupling uh, because in the long run it will affect uh, our policy making at the official level. Um, uh, and it will only uh, foster greater uh, misunderstanding and uh, hostility. Yeah, sure. But I still have a question regarding this. Do you think this uh, trend, this very harmful trend will uh, exist in the future? And are there any feasible solutions we can do uh, as individual to solve the problem uh, about the exchange of uh, academics um, I, I do hope, you know, after the pandemic is uh, under control, uh, people can resume uh, some uh, previous academic uh, exchanges. Um, and hopefully, if 
the overall political relations uh, among the major powers, US-China, for example, uh, can, uh, can be uh, taken under control um, if the political leaders uh, is, are willing to uh, stabilize the overall relationship. That would gradually, I think, uh, reduce some of the difficulties uh, for scholars. Uh, yeah, you know, much of the challenge um, is beyond the control of individual scholars. Those are requirements by their organizations, uh, by their institutes. Uh, so they have to go through this process. Uh, it's not really much up to themselves. And of, and of course, that said, at the individual level, there is always room uh, for, uh, for efforts. Um, uh, people can still uh, write and publish and exchange views publicly. Uh, there are still opportunities to attend meetings. Um, and I would acknowledge that uh, scholars who are independent uh, would have more opportunities to do so than those scholars who are affiliated with official research institutes, um, uh, etc. Uh, so maybe uh, those more independent scholars can play a greater role in continuing uh, and promoting international exchanges. Yeah, sure, I agree with you. But for the most people, they should just like keep finger crossed and hope for the better, hope for the better uh, situation. And now let's move on to our final part of discussion, the intergenerational dialogue, which is a very popular topic in today's discussion, uh, as well as in our youth fusion program. And uh, what can students in relevant majors and other young academics learn from your personal experiences? As we've known, uh, you have a change of academic focus and you also have a combined educational uh, background. Well, I, I always believe that um... We, you know, as as young scholars, uh, we need to open up our minds. Uh, we need to uh, really uh, understand uh, how uh, decision making in other countries work. Uh, we need to develop nuanced expertise. Um, uh, I think that you know, uh, be professional. Uh, you know. If you want to uh, uh, become a nuclear scholar, nuclear expert, or arms control expert, or non-proliferation expert, you know, uh, do your uh, do your homework and uh, you know really learn the stuff that is necessary, um, including you know uh, history, technical uh, aspects, uh, domestic uh, policy, uh, foreign policy, as I mentioned. Nuclear is a small and narrow field, but it's, but if you delve into it, it's a very broad uh, field, and there 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 is always much more to learn. Um, and and all this uh, knowledge is all public. It's all public domain information. People can um, acquire all this knowledge as long as they spend time uh, looking for them and uh, uh, doing research. Uh, it's not like you have to get access to classified information. No, there is no need to get anywhere close to classified information. 
you know, there is more than enough uh, knowledge that people can learn through, uh, through public information. Uh, and so it's, it actually is not as sensitive as it uh, appears. Uh, if people really uh, work in this field, they would understand everything is actually, um, all the interesting uh, information already exists in the public domain. And I, I do believe one of the key obstacles uh, for global efforts to promote arms control, cooperative security, disarmament is that people don't understand each other. They don't have nuanced understanding about each other's thinking. Um, I, I always uh, give this example that uh, once there, there, there was a senior colonel of the PLA uh, who uh, worked as a senior researcher uh, in the second artillery uh, who claims that he knows uh, a lot about China's nuclear decision making and deliberation. And he once was uh, uh, talking about his experience on TV. So this is all public information. He was explaining his personal experience on a TV program. And he told the audience that he once received this invitation letter from American University professor who invited him to an international uh, policy conference. And in the invitation letter, uh, it said, uh, you know, um, Senior Colonel XYZ, if you are willing to accept this invitation, I would be happy to uh, let my uh, secretary, Miss ABC, to arrange your accommodation and travels, etc. And this PLA Colonel, after reading this sentence, he believed that uh, this American university professor was uh, was hinting at some sexual favor for him uh, to come to an international conference uh, and uh, uh, divulge national secrets because simply the letter said, I would allow my secretary, Miss ABC, to arrange your uh, hotel accommodation and travels. And he believed that this was a honey trap. And he uh, very uh, proudly uh, talked about his uh, integrity, his uh, capacity to resist this uh, uh, corrosion uh, from the evil Americans uh, on TV. And all the audience gave him a big applause, right? Uh, but for people who uh, you know, have more experience in conducting international exchange, I think it's very normal to them that this is how international meetings were arranged. The professors would never arrange your hotel themselves. It's always done by a secretary. Uh, there is nothing particular about this invitation letter. Uh, but because I think that's the trouble, because it shows that, uh, especially for Chinese influential military strategists, th their work is very important. Therefore, they are much more protected from the outside world. And they don't travel. They don't talk to people. Uh, they work in a very enclosed environment. Sometimes they don't speak uh, foreign language. Re they rely on translated materials. Um, I, I think there is a problem with that uh, because you don't really develop nuanced understandings about how the other system works. And therefore, you can easily get misunderstandings. Uh, and that's just a very, I think, a simple example. Um, so I do believe for any young people, if you really are dedicated to make a positive contribution to this field and to international peace and stability, um, 
the first thing we, we, we do is we make sure we are, we, we are real professional uh, specialists. We do our work. We uh, uh, equip us with uh, sufficient knowledge um, and um, I think that's that's uh, and in this in this process uh, always keep open minds. And the reason, you know, um, you know, in in in, in uh, academic discussions, uh, many Chinese experts, uh, you know, we often have this debate: what's the American objective in deploying missile defense system uh, in Asia Pacific? And uh, many Chinese experts firmly and genuinely believe the U.S. has a long-term strategy to gradually deploy missile defense system uh, around China. So eventually uh, it would become a network of missile defense systems that would surround China and uh, completely neutralize China's capacity to conduct a nuclear second strike. Um, Personally, I don't agree with this assessment because I think uh, I was uh, I, I lived in the United States, I studied in the United States for six years. I was able to uh, attend uh, policy meetings, workshops, academic exchanges. I was able to saw, in, you know, with my own eyes, uh, uh, debates among U.S. officials, among U.S. policymakers. They have different views. They have very different views about what American uh, uh, missile defense policy should be. And therefore they argue against each other. They clashed with each other. Sometimes their views are so opposed that their personal relations were ruined, right? So you can see their, you know, their internal debate, which was real. Um, and if you can observe in close distance, you will know there is no way that the US government has a coherent long-term strategy to do this and that in, 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 in the next few, few decades. There's no way their internal dispute is so serious that they, they, want, they wanted to kill each other, right? So I, I think the reason there is so deep suspicion here in China about some American policy is simply because people haven't developed nuanced understandings about internal American thinking and deliberation and debates. And that's the role that scholars should and can play, right? All this is in open public. You just need to get act. You just need to read them. Just need to know them, right? You just need to learn them. There's no obstacle to learn. Uh, so I think that's good news for young experts. If you want to spend, if you want to make an effort, there's always a time uh, to learn. Uh, and you can, you can easily become an expert. Um, uh, and I think after achieving that, uh, 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 experts will be in a much better position to make an informed and positive contribution to policy debates. Yeah, sure. People, especially experts, they should keep open-minded and have more uh, debates in the society as well as in their specific field. And uh, specifically, uh, what recommendations would you give to Chinese young academics who try to find ways of combining their research interests uh, with their disarmament work? Well, um, I think, you know, again, the, the nuclear field, it sounds very small and, and narrow, but in fact, it's very broad and deep. I think young scholars, they can, they can pick a niche area or a niche topic that interests them 
and then try to you know understand everything about this very small topic um and uh, and that will gradually help broaden their um their perspective that will uh, lead them to other areas or topics of interesting um so i think at least this is what how it happened to me i, I became interested in a small uh, uh, topic and then in the process of doing research i uh, you know uh, i was exposed to even more uh, topics of uh, of interests um so gradually you 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 follow this uh, flow and and um uh and and you you uh, become more and more familiar with this field if you are you know there are many uh, education programs available today uh, that if you are you know if you developed enough uh, interest you are determined to now pursue a formal uh, training in this field there are many academic opportunities uh, short-term programs long-term programs master's programs phd programs um, so there are uh, abundant opportunities. Um, uh, so I encourage uh, our uh, you know, young colleagues to to try and uh, make good use of those uh, resources. And in the process, um, uh, I think it's also important uh, to to note that uh, disarmament policy is never uh, a, a topic uh, of you know it, it's it's never an isolated topic. The reason that one country have this or that policy on disarmament is always closely related to its overall foreign policy or even domestic policy. Um, so in, in, I think it would benefit young experts to do two things to, uh, simultaneously. One is to develop very specialized expertise in, in, the, in the narrow field area, but at the same time also develop broad understanding uh, about uh, about a country's foreign policy and domestic policy uh, because there are there are, there are so there are so strong connections between the two uh, and and you have to understand the uh, one in order to understand the other uh, so um, so uh, you know I think one challenge facing today's uh, young experts is they they don't they don't. They don't necessarily pay much attention to the overall picture. Uh, what is happening in China, uh, in general? What is China's overall foreign policy approach? Uh, and they only are interested in one very specific area. Sometimes that's fine, but in terms of disarmament policy, it's all very much connected. Um, so uh, I think two levels of efforts are uh, necessary uh, at the same time. Yeah, sure. And today we are, of course, in this part, we are talking about intergenerational dialogue. You give uh, very much suggestions uh, to our younger generation as well as the young academics. And what can we uh, as what can we learn from your generation and we as university students and the younger generation? Um. I'm not, I'm not sure it's uh, uh... this question may be a little bit general, but uh, maybe it's about 
uh, in the field of nuclear arms, the attitudes towards uh, the academic or just some in the broader field attitude of study or something like that? Well, uh, you know, uh, firstly, uh, well, it's certainly there is a generational uh, change uh, with um, the younger generations uh, being um, better educated, uh, you know, more multilingual, uh, more equipped with modern technology, uh, exposed to more opportunities at an early age. Um, uh, but I think uh, sometimes uh, it's there is there there are always even I, I think in, in one generation there are always people who are more informed, uh, who are more willing to learn, uh, who are more, who are more uh, modest, who are more uh, uh, who more uh, aspire to become uh, uh, intelligent. Whereas there are always other people who you know who make less effort. Uh, to become informed, who are more, well, so to speak, uh, bigots, um, who you know are more satisfied with uh, with uh, not knowing uh, much about uh, things. So uh, you know, uh, I think even even in uh, within one generation, uh, it, it's it's a time where. Uh, Individual efforts uh, make uh, a lot of difference. Uh, regardless what your colleagues are doing, I think people who have good expectations of their own career and life, they should, you know, make their individual efforts to uh, enrich themselves. Um, uh, and it's a time when, if people do, uh, they can really uh, benefit. Um, and in terms of uh, a generational difference. I I do think you know sometimes our generation is a little more fortunate. We we grew up in an environment where China is China was becoming gradually more connected with the outside world. Uh, so we felt very uh, inspired. We felt you know the world is available to us. We can do anything as long as we try. There is no limitation. There is no obstacle. I I gather. I think uh, the next generation uh, is living in a, a different uh, environment. China is becoming more inward looking and China may become less and less connected uh, with the rest of the world. Uh, so that's uh, you know a very big uh, challenge I think the younger generation need uh, to deal with. Uh, they live in an environment where people think there is less need to to understand uh, foreign perspectives because China is so strong, it's now time for China to dictate uh, international uh, rules and norms. Um, Western countries are so biased; there is no use talking to them. As long as we can build up China's power, things will be fine. Um, I think that's a, this is a very different environment from the previous one where uh, we uh, grew up with. Uh, so. Uh, for that reason, I think uh, young experts uh, who grew up uh, who grew up in in this uh, uh, period of time will have to make even more uh, individual efforts uh, to uh, break their information cocoon uh, to come out of their comfort 
zones uh, to uh, be waiting uh, to um, not be uh, dragged by their colleagues, not be too much affected by how other people are doing what they are working on, but be really willing to enrich oneself, uh, make individual efforts, understand your own mission of life, uh, be you know pursue the 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 work that you think is worth your life, worth your time. Um, I think that individual level effort is becoming more important. Yeah, sure. I think you give a very uh, exact picture of our uh, college students. College students sometimes uh, are very similar to what you've just uh, described. They have to step out of their comfort zone. Sometimes they are too, uh, the lack of kind of motivation to do so. and. Uh, sometimes are not certain about their future, are not determined about things they are doing. So, uh, but you've uh, said in our previous, uh, in your previous speech that uh, our generation, the younger generation, uh, is full of passion. And is there something your generation can learn from us uh, in terms of uh, uh, the realization of uh, awareness of some social issues as well as uh, something like that? Yeah, I, I do believe um, the younger generations are more aware of their, uh, you know, they are more aware of the, the meaning of their individual life, right? They, you know, for our generation, sometimes we, our life just, you know, is 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 to go with the with the flow, right? Uh, you you were taught to do this and that, and and you 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 do it without thinking too much about it. Uh, so that's that means sometimes our life is predetermined by the system, by the society. That means sometimes our perspectives are limited, um, and uh, we we felt we were we are in control of our own life, but in fact we are not. We are just you know go with the flow. Um, but I think for your generation. Uh, you were born with this awareness that uh, you you want to take control of your own life. You you want you you don't care uh, too much about uh, you know you are judged by foreign by strangers by by some groups of the of society. They don't matter that much to you. You want to pursue your own life. I think that's a, a encouraging development. Uh, uh, indeed, you know, the older I become, I felt that I should have thought more thoroughly about uh, the meaning of my life, what I want to do in my short uh, decades of career and life. Uh, time is the most precious resource. We all want to use it smartly and strategically from the from you know from as early as possible. Uh, I think young people would benefit from. Uh, Having this sense of mission early on in their life, uh, want to you know develop individual perspectives on everything that is important to their own lives, uh, including what they want to do, what research they want to pursue, what impact they want to leave on this world. Uh, again, this is an, an era where there are abundant resources and, and opportunities. If you are aware of them, if you want to, if you make explicit effort at, at it, you can always learn very quickly and you can always equip yourself with many new tools, modern tools that were never available to our generation when we were young. Uh, so again, I think life is 
much more unlimited for, for your generation as long as you know where you want to go, what you want to do, and who you want to become. Yeah, yeah. I think you are very reasonable uh, in terms of what you are saying to uh, young people. And I think your words are quite uh, encouraging to our uh, younger generation. And do, uh, Dr. Zhao, do you have any other words to our audiences today? Well, I think this is a very comprehensive uh, chat. I, I appreciate the opportunity. I applaud the work you do. Uh, and I'm very uh, inspired and encouraged by your uh, personal uh, talent and uh, willingness uh, and, and efforts. I, you know, it's, it's a great privilege to uh, have this discussion with you. I wish you all the best. I look forward to future opportunities to engage with uh, you and your colleagues. Yeah, sure. I thank you so much uh, as well. And I, I'm very happy to do the interview today to have a further discussion with you.